welcome to another episode of Startup Hustle Middle East. Today we've got Khalid Shivji over here. He's the founder of AA Consultants. They're HR and legal consultants. So uh, they specialize in advising startups and SMEs. So today we thought we'd get Khalid to give us a little bit of advice about the legal side of things. Uh, it's super important when you're starting your company to have your legal stuff uh, all squared away. So. Kala is going to advise us on some of the most important things when it comes to legal advice. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tadar. Thank you, ma'am. It's a pleasure to be here today. Okay. Awesome. So, can you tell us a little bit about a consultants? Why you started it, and what gap you're looking to address in the market? Thank you. Well, I've been working in businesses for over 15 years now, and I've been a lawyer for more than eight of those years. So I've had a perspective of being a business person as well as a lawyer, mm-hmm. and seeing the change in how it went from being in business to being in legal practice. And I found that being in legal practice made myself and my ability to help my friends who had operated businesses very, very difficult to reach, simply because I was looking after one client by being based in an in-house organisation. Mm-hmm. Right. And what I found is, I found that I gained a lot of satisfaction by being right at the coalface, working with innovative tech entrepreneurs and startups, helping them to grow their businesses. Mm-hmm. But I was never really able to monetize that work and really kind of charge for it and actually make it a business of my own. And hence, mm-hmm. that's the reason I wanted to set up AA Consultants because, as far as I'm aware, it's a unique business which has not been replicated anywhere in the Middle East. And I'm really, really proud to have um, been one of the starters uh, uh, in the legal industry to have done this. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that a lot of founders really struggle with um, what legal documents are the most crucial to have, and they either leave them themselves really overexposed or um, find themselves in really tricky situations. So, working with startups, what are the mandatory documents, legal documents that they should have in place, and that they should consult a lawyer? Uh, about yeah. About yeah. Okay, so um, the first uh, set of documents that a startup should have are commercial contracts to help them contract with their suppliers and clients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they should have obviously have non-disclosure agreements uh, ready to be proposed to parties who they want to go into business with or partner with as well. They should most definitely have a shareholders agreement Mm -hmm. if they are in business with different uh, partners or other shareholders Mm -hmm. um, who have a vested interest or stake in their business and they should be ready to talk about term sheets uh, for them to look at with venture capitalists so that they're aware about what the terms of a term sheet look like Mm -hmm. and how that would mean that they have to think about structuring their business from the outset so Mm -hmm. that they can be aware of how the shareholding pattern and structure of that business is going to change if they're going to be applying for Series C or B funding. Okay. Um, So um, just in very simple terms, if we can explain all these documents, like what exactly they mean when you mean with by commercial agreements or with shareholder agreements. I know what they mean, but just for the sake of the audience, just so it's a little bit uh, clearer, like what it means. That's a very good question. So commercial agreements are primarily written contracts Mm-hmm. which outline the scope and responsibilities and charges to be paid by one party to another, mm-hmm. either in the context of a supplier supplying services or goods to a startup, mm-hmm. or in the context of the startup supplying goods or services to their clients. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's very important for your listeners to note that contracts can be verbal and written. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so therefore contracts can be very, very easily executed by way of a handshake 
in a, in a hotel lobby somewhere. But that's not the right way to but do it. But right? that's not the right way to do it. And that's exactly <laughs> that my point. That doesn't hold up <laughs> okay. anywhere. <laughs> exactly. And the reason it's so important is, especially in this part of the world, in the Middle East, yeah. contracts which are verbal are very, very much held as being sacrosanct. Mm-hmm. It's a sign of honor and a sign of respect when you shake hands with a business partner and say, I'm ready to, pl- to supply you with goods and services. Mm-hmm. But the problem with verbal contracts anywhere in the world is that if anything were to go wrong, you've got no written evidence to demonstrate what you would agree with another party, and it will be very, very difficult to enforce your rights to receive payment mm-hmm. when you go to a court. Yeah. Right. So uh, in the case of a jar car, which is our business, we deal with other car rental partners, and we have a commercial contract when we bring on a new partner on board, uh, clarifying the details, our commission uh, structure, our level of service, and those kind of things. So that's that's a commercial contract, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's called an SLA. It, it, does that mean the same thing? It's indeed. It's, it's a written contract. Okay. Right. SLA meaning service level agreement. Yes. Um, but let me make one thing very clear. You should be very proud as a startup firm that you actually have a written contract that you want to propose to your business partners or clients. Mm-hmm. I've come across so many business owners who are just too as- too afraid mm-hmm. to put a contract in front of their potential clients. Because they, it'll offend them? Exactly. They oh maybe scare them away. I, I mean, it's, it's, it happens. Like yeah. Somebody will verbally agree with you about doing business, but when you put a contract in front of them, they're like, oh, I have to check with my management. I have to get this uh, cross-checked by somebody else. I need somebody else to look at it. So it, yeah. it does... There is a fear factor when signing an official document. Yeah. But, but my perspective on that to business owners and startups is that he or she may have spent hours, days, and weeks, and months investing their time into that business. Yeah. And they've secured what might be their very first contract. Why would they put that all at risk by not having a written contract? Yeah. At the end of the day, we all know as business owners that cash is king. Yeah. Yeah. If you haven't got the cash flow in your business, you can't afford to pay your employees, your suppliers. Yeah. You've got no working capital to grow your business with. Mm-hmm. And a contract is really the only way that you can uh, make sure that you can bring in that cash mm-hmm. to make yeah. sure that you can continue to operate your business without having to borrow money or becoming even insolvent. Mm-hmm. Okay, I had one question regarding this, okay? Um, I want to be able to scale up my business, right? So sometimes I want my contracts to be electronic, like a terms and conditions on my app where my partners can just look at that, they accept it, and then that's my contract. Is that Does that hold up? Does that hold up? Is that a good way to do it? Or is that not the best idea? Actually, it's the best idea. Okay. Because electronic contracts are the contracts of the future. Mm -hmm. And they're available now. Mm -hmm. So if that wasn't too much of a cliche, there are systems out there um, that you can use to upload PDF contracts Mm -hmm. to an online cloud system. And you can send those contracts to another business partner to sign. If I might, if I might make a plug for one of the businesses I know who does that really well, okay. it's a business called Zorro Sign, okay. Um, okay. who's operated by a gentleman called Shams Hadi, and he's mm. Dubai-based. And he was one of the pioneers in this field who brought the best encryption technology from the US and loaded it onto his cloud-based system. And actually now it, it, it enables people to have contracts signed electronically, and they are very much enforceable. Uh, within the Middle East region. There are certain exceptions which I can provide advice about on, on a, a specific country-by-country basis. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, electronic contracts are absolutely 100% worth their weight in gold. I think in terms of just saving time, for sure, electronic contracts would be an amazing thing. Um, one thing I have seen is, uh, and I don't know how relevant it is 
for the rest of the Middle East. But in the UAE, uh, the DIFC courts are different from um, if it says under the UAE court or something. So I wanted to know if that's relevant for startups, if it's important to know the difference uh, or not. It is. And I, th I think you've raised a very important point. Mm -hmm. First of all, the courts of the Dubai International Financial Center are courts of the Emirate of Dubai in the same way as the Dubai courts. Both of them are mutually recognized by the government of Dubai as being dispute resolution forums where okay. people can bring claims and have them heard. Mm -hmm. um, the distinction between both courts is very, very important. First of all, the Dubai courts operates primarily in Arabic. Okay. Um, and it has civil law judges, judges from the UAE primarily from, and other judges from Sudan and Egypt uh, who are very, very well versed in civil laws mm -hmm. and can make rulings on very, very strong matters of contract principles in line with the UAE's and the, the, the government of Dubai's uh, laws on commercial contracts. Okay. Uh, so for that, I'm referring to things like the civil transactions law and mm -hmm. the commercial code. Okay. okay. However, the... DIFC courts was established as an English-speaking court, okay. um, established with common law rules, but with a civil law attitude to how contracts are interpreted. Okay. So there are judges who sit in the DIFC courts who are also Emirati, and, or they might be British or from Singapore. Okay. Um, they're very well versed in common law, they're very well versed in civil law, but their unique difference is that they operate proceedings in English. Okay. okay. And so okay. for startups and entrepreneurs who are primarily um, English-speaking or like to operate in English, uh, the DIFC courts provides them with that an advantage to present all their documents in English and have proceedings heard in English. Now, okay. there is also another strong advantage as well. Um, so my um, priority as a lawyer is to help to save my clients' costs. I don't want them to spend more money on legal fees than they mm -hmm. might otherwise have to. Mm -hmm. So I'm Especially very happy. since they're startups. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm very happy to recommend the DIFC Court's Small Claims Tribunal. The okay. Small Claims Tribunal uh, will hear any claim up to the value of 500,000 dirhams. Okay. And lawyers are not allowed to appear on behalf of either party. Okay. So as a business owner, when you lodge a claim in the DIFC Court Small Claims Tribunal, it'll be you that goes into a tribunal forum and sits opposite side, opposite your uh, the defendant. The person that you're fighting against. Yeah. And you will have to present your arguments in front mm -hmm. of a judge mm -hmm. without a lawyer being present. And that helps so them. So that means you're not paying lawyer fees and stuff? You're not paying lawyer fees. And the success rate for resolving claims like that is very high. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. But uh, in order to utilize the DIFC courts, you need to be a DIFC listed company, right? In actually, you don't. The, oh, really? The only prerequisite you must have in your commercial written contracts is you must have a jurisdiction clause which specifically states that any claims or disputes will be heard by the DIFC courts. I've seen that in contracts. Oh wow! I didn't yeah. know that. So you could like so I could use the DIFC court with my company, even though I'm not listed in DIFC. Absolutely. That oh, is a very awesome. interesting point for founders very to, good know, to know, especially if you don't have an Arab-speaking co-founder or yeah. advisor on the board, uh, then 
and you would like to conduct all the proceedings and stuff in english then for sure i'm getting i'm getting you to check out all my contracts yeah, yeah, yeah. no no charge for you don't worry about that <laughs> well i was going to add for free <laughs> anyway oh you read my mind great um okay so i have a question i don't know if it's a silly question um but how how much does an mou uh, how much weight does an mou hold compared to a shareholder agreement it's a very good question it's not at all silly at all okay thank you so the first thing i want to stress to your listeners is that there is no such thing in this region called a non binding mou okay there's okay. no such thing the civil laws in this part of the world recognize a contract even if it's written to be non binding as being legally binding okay so when someone talks about a non binding mou they're not really talking from a position of authority mm-hmm. because all written documents if they're designed to be legal documents will be binding in some way shape or form mm-hmm. so in that respect it's far more um productive for shareholders of a business to execute a written shareholders agreement which is designed to be legally binding okay but if it's M- if, but an mou, an MOU is, is also legal. enforceable yeah exactly if an mou is enforceable anyway then what difference does it make if it's an mou or a shareholder agreement by name an mou might be no different from a shareholders agreement mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but the contents of it are likely to be very significant so okay. as long as the contents of it reflect what ought to be in a shareholders agreement then you've got a written legally binding document that all the shareholders can use to enforce their rights against each other okay so you're just saying mous are generally a little bit light in terms of content compared to a shareholder agreement so that's why better to opt for a shareholder agreement anyway okay if you're looking for resources for businesses to use um that might be template based you'd really want to sign up for databases such as Westlaw PLC okay. which is owned by Thomson Reuters okay. uh, or there's another one called LexisNexis okay uh, and it's very important to know that those are the actual those are actually the templates that most law firms will base the documents that they provide clients on Okay. okay. You've got access to it as a as a you know from the actual source. And are okay. these paid for or these are paid for. So mm-hmm. what I tend to advise um businesses to do is just to sign up for one license where one user in that business can use it and download the templates they need for that business. It's very cost effective. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the cost of the database on its own, it can run into a couple of thousands of dollars uh, okay. per year. But if you look at the the value of the legal advice that may be required on the back of that without access to the database you're finding it's going to be very very insignificant over time mm-hmm. right. and the databases themselves have very very well written practice notes mm-hmm. and um guides on how to avoid disputes and of course templates that you can download and edit with drafting notes as well okay, okay. so um, you you'd advise startups to do that maybe go down and uh, download one of these templates and base their contract off of that without legal advice no my emphasis is on helping businesses to save money right yeah. so i would always advise businesses to have a go at filling out the filling out those templates themselves first okay. get 70% of the work done themselves and then hand the 30% of the questions over to a lawyer to answer on a paper okay. basis okay okay that okay. makes rather sense. than a lawyer doing a 400% okay sure. okay so um i think that uh, there's definitely a need for a company like aa consultants because 
I think entrepreneurs tend to look at the pretty side of things and maybe don't always consider all the things that can go wrong by not having their ducks in a row. Um, and the idea is to just kick off as soon as possible. So definitely there is a need uh, for it. And uh, from our listeners also, we know that uh, they would like to get legal advice. So I'm mostly curious about how do you monetize things considering that founders are very um, tight uh, in terms of budgets. So have you figured out the, I mean, of course you figured out the model, but can you enlighten us about it? It's all about trust. Okay. Uh, I want business owners to come to me and to trust me for two reasons. First of all, to trust me that I'm going to save them money. Mm -hmm. And secondly, I want them to trust me that they're going to get really good advice that they will be used to build, to build, basically build their business and mitigate risks that they will have uh, incorporated into their business without without the uh, the, the, the use of legal advice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and most of my clients are very cash strapped. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very, very cash strapped. And it's very, very difficult persuading them to part ways with their money because it's so hard and it's their own capital that they've saved up for mm -hmm. perhaps many years. Uh, they haven't necessarily budgeted for the cost of having a lawyer assisting them. Mm -hmm. But I have to give them credit for one thing. They had the courage and the bravery to come to me in the first place. Mm -hmm. Right. Rather than waiting for things to go wrong and then having to get a lawyer involved at that stage. Mm -hmm. And I respect them for that. Mm -hmm. And because I respect them for that, I make sure they get the best value for money. How does it uh, compare to if they were to come to A consultants or to go to some other law firm? Okay, so let's talk about the different payment mechanisms first. So if I asked for payment as cash, in mm -hmm. form of cash, I would provide very flexible payment terms. Okay. What I would tend to do is try to offer uh, my clients the ability of paying with about 60 days worth of credit, mm -hmm. okay. um, with a small sum paid up front uh, just to cover my initial costs. Of course. Mm -hmm. And what we would do is we would agree a very fixed um, structure upon which mm. I would work to avoid them having to uh, exceed their budget mm -hmm. and to make sure they had an expectation as to how um, that advice would then help them with a particular project that's coming along okay. and making sure they would understand that, that that advice that they're getting can be replicated for other projects as well so then they, they don't have to spend it on a project-by-project project basis. And I would okay. make it very clear to them as to why that particular advice would be so useful for them going, for them going forward. Okay. It isn't necessarily my objective to take payment in the form of equity Mm -hmm. purely because sometimes for lawyers it can conflict with their duties to act in the best interest of their client yeah actually that makes sense yeah 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 if you get a very risky yeah. shareholder or a shareholder who is has a very unhealthy appetite to risk and you've taken a share of a business in form of equity uh, it can be very difficult for a lawyer then to advise them if they own a stake in a very risky business because how can they really give good advice if they yeah, really know the business yeah. is going to lose money yeah. okay maybe that was a silly question <laughs> but yeah Not okay. it's, it's, it's a question I've been asked before by the okay. way okay so um, one thing I want to check with you there are a lot of startups that uh, might be trying to introduce some new idea uh, that hasn't or a new kind of business that hasn't operated before in a particular region so an example would be like um, you know the, the bikes the, 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 the electric scooters um, you know, like, uh, I think there were a few that started up over here and then the government came in and made them illegal. But um, for businesses like that, um, 
who are trying to do something new, how do you advise those kind of startups? Is there any, uh, can you help them navigate the government uh, regulations. regulations and stuff like that? I can, and I think a lot of it's actually based not on particular legal advice I need to give them, but actually just based on common sense. Mm -hmm. um, the government uh, of this country in particular is very, very entrepreneurial, and they have mm -hmm. a very open and innovative attitude to talking to startups and considering how that can help with the uh, the country as a whole in terms of increasing its happiness, in terms of increasing its national growth uh, domestic product. Mm -hmm. right. uh, and I really value that because it gives people the confidence that when they go to government stakeholders to apply for um, the opportunity to showcase their business, they're likely to find someone who's going to want to talk to them. Mm -hmm. yeah. The one thing I would, I would ask startups to bear in mind is that regulatory compliance mm -hmm. is a very important aspect of actually operating their business because they need to make sure they have the right licenses in place mm -hmm. uh, that will allow them to build that business and to appeal to the government. So, for example, a very common um, observation that people have made is that if you want to pitch to a particular uh, emir, uh, emir uh, sort of government, such as the government of Dubai or the government of Abu Dhabi, mm -hmm. you'd be very well advised to have a trade license which is actually incorporated within that emirate rather than um, a different uh, emirate. A, a different emirate. And mm -hmm. secondly, if you're going to pitch to the government, you need to make sure that you've got a trade license, which is an onshore trade license, where you have a local partner uh, or a local shareholder mm -hmm. uh, fronting your business to make sure that you've got the the right uh, business incorporative sort of business structure mm -hmm. uh, in order to approach the government. Because if, technically speaking, if you've incorporated inside a free zone, yeah. you don't have that right to trade goods and services onshore. Oh, okay. mm. And a lot of people tend to forget that. They tend to forget that they've operated on the basis of being a free zone because it's cheaper generally and yeah. it's easier to get visas. But then they forget that when they need to pitch to the government, they actually need to be onshore. Okay. Uh, off camera, we were discussing how the three most important things that you need to focus on in a contract has changed over the years. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? What the priorities are? So one of the things that lawyers have to do when advising clients is to predict where the hotspots in a contract are going to be. Mm -hmm. They need to draw the client's attention to clauses which are perhaps more important in today's world than the clients might think, mm -hmm. and to provide clients with a negotiation strategy on how to get the most out of those clauses as they're being negotiated so that when the contract is signed, the client, the client is effectively in the best position. Mm -hmm. One of the studies that I've been following very closely is an annual study from the International Association of Commercial and Contract Managers, okay. uh, or for short, that's IACCM. And they are a, an American organization mm -hmm. that annually surveys more than 2,000 businesses to talk about exactly what terms were the really difficult ones to negotiate in their contracts mm -hmm. and to rank those terms uh, alongside each other to see how those are changing over the years. Mm -hmm. um, one of the most important things that I've seen coming out of those studies is the difference in the terms that were considered to be very, very uh, heavily negotiated in the, the boom years of, of the 2000s okay. to the terms which are now being heavily negotiated as we're into a sort of a recession era mm -hmm. or an era where cash isn't so readily available. Mm -hmm. um, in that particular era of um, the, the boom years, you tended to find that between 2007 and 2011, at, towards the cusp of the, uh, the economic cycle that we're in, you tended to find that very important terms such as prices and service levels were less important mm -hmm. 
because businesses were growing so fast and they were winning so much, so much new business. Mm. They didn't have to worry about the, the cracks in their business models and didn't have to worry about deals being lost mm. because the amount of money they bring in was sufficient to keep their business going and growing. Okay. Now that we're in an era of um, cash constraint, Mm-hmm. where money is harder to find, where business is harder to, f- to secure and mm-hmm. to maintain, you're tending to find those terms concerning scope and prices and responsibilities of each party are now very, very important in a contract for both parties to consider and they're more heavily negotiated mm-hmm. than what we call in the legal field standard boilerplate, boilerplate clauses such as limitations on liability and um, performance guarantees, uh, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So... One thing I tend to advise clients is that their contracts need to be very, very specific as to what they're promising they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. They need to make sure that the pricing model that's laid down for th- in their contract needs to be very, very explicit about the specific milestones that they need to hit in order to be paid mm-hmm. and the payment terms that their clients are going to commit to to pay mm-hmm. them and the length of time it's going to take for that money to come in. No, for sure. I mean... With I work at Yellow and we are an advertising and marketing agency and I think that the thing that is probably the most negotiated and the ones that we push very hard on is definitely the payment terms and the, the scope for sure because I think that when you're offering a creative service it's even more important to spell out the scope as much as possible and to spell out the rounds of revisions and things that you would do on it and what those milestones of, of are for payment terms. Because um, cash is an issue and uh, as a startup, it is super important because you're planning your runway based on those milestone payments, you know? So it's definitely important for us. So uh, earlier we were talking about some of the most important things that you need to look at when you're doing these uh, contracts that you were talking about, the shareholders agreement and you know your uh, contracts with your suppliers and things like that. So what are the most important things that you need to consider? In the shareholders agreement. The share- yeah. In the shareholders agreement, think very carefully about the voting rights that are given mm. to each shareholder. Make so sure governance. Governance, governance and the, the process by which each shareholder can exercise the decision about how the company is going to be run. And think very carefully about which decisions you want to make sure the shareholders can make on behalf of the business and which decisions you want the director to be able to make without having to go to the shareholders for uh, pre, pre, you know, prior approval. Okay, mm, okay. Interesting. So could you give an example of something like that? Absolutely. So a very good example is about buying assets for the business. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have to approach the shareholders of a business just to have the authority to buy a paperclip uh, or uh, a packet of pencils, your business is going to be crippled. So you have to delegate some authority to the board of directors in order to make decisions on a day-to-day basis about how their business should be run. Mm-hmm. And the shareholders need to be involved with the big decisions, such as when to approach a bank about financing, when to open up a new bank account, when to buy a car, perhaps, or when, when to buy to a When to get a CEO, Absolutely. things like that. Yeah. Absolutely, because okay. the shareholders are there. I mean, they, they're good at guiding the business because obviously they own the business, but you've got to leave it down to a team of people to run the business on a day-to-day basis, and they need to have the freedom to do things, which are going to be in the best interest of the, interest of the business as well. Absolutely, I agree. Because shareholders need to be able to think about governing themselves in accordance with an agreement. They don't necessarily need to have a lawyer sitting by them all the time, um, showing them how to 
uh, affirm new agreements or to write new agreements. Okay. The shareholders are the kings and queens, respectively, of that business, and they can decide okay. how to run it themselves without necessarily having to instruct a lawyer. What they do need to have, though, is they have, need to have a very flexible way of making decisions on behalf of a company. Mm. A lot of shareholder agreements are traditionally structured where you have to have face-to-face -face board meetings, but that's very outdated nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Skype meetings and meetings via video conference and meetings via telephone are very, very acceptable. Yeah. And it makes okay. it easier to run a business when the shareholders are in different parts of the world as well. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and I think other things that are important are like drag along clauses and things like that because mm. you know when somebody wants to share to, to like say sell the business, mm -hmm. then you know sometimes it's important that minor shareholders don't stop that process. You know? there are, there's a very very strong point um, that you need to make to minor, minority shareholders is that they should always have an exit strategy from a business, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the drag along rights can generate so much contention because some shareholders are very wedded to the business and they feel very yeah. proud about it they don't want to let go but everyone in a business needs to have an exit strategy and these drag along rights can sometimes give them that because it makes them you know, more difficult for them not to make those difficult decisions because yeah. the difficult decision about where to sell is given to them yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. What else do you think is really important in a shareholder agreement? The shareholder agreement needs to have the, the right approach to generating and issuing new shares to potential Series B, Series C and Series A funders. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the uh, difficulty with executing those agreements is they don't think about, well, when are they going to start conceding control of that mm -hmm. business? When are the shareholders going to release or uh, allow more shares to be allotted mm -hmm. to attract new funders to come in and actually invest in that business? And they need to think about that very maturely and think, well, you know, at at a certain stage in the future we might want a lot more shares yes it might lead to a dilution in my rights but I'm gaining because I've got another investor who's perhaps more business minded than me and has got more resources available and I'm mm. going to make some money out of it hopefully as well yeah right yeah Okay. Um, is there anything else that's important in a shareholder agreement I think the shareholders agreement has to be precipitated by a term sheet first of all so mm -hmm. there is absolutely no point uh, shareholders going in and, and reviewing a 50-page shareholder agreement if they haven't got the key terms laid out in a term sheet before because I thought term sheet was just between VCs and the startup they can be between VCs and a startup but term sheets are very useful instruments between any parties who want to contract on very very difficult terms where they've got okay. a very complicated contract coming ahead of them because they can agree the principles of that contract in a term sheet so that they can agree principles first before getting into the nitty-gritty drafting of that contract. Okay, so shareholders need to have a term sheet first that outlines all the responsibilities and the details and then have a contract that refers back to the term sheet? Ideally. Oh, Ideally. okay, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, yeah, any contract, you can have a term sheet before. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Indeed, and I okay. think that... So, a so, I, I so basically, a term sheet is just the highlights of the contract, the most key points that might have negotiations or whatever. So that's like, uh, once you send the term sheet, that's you're saying these one. are the things that I'm agreeing to and this is what we have understood of the contract and then the final contract comes after. Oh, okay. Usually, okay. that's how okay. I understand it, right? That's actually correct. Okay, <laughs> okay, yeah. okay. Interesting. All right. Yeah. Um, and for contracts with suppliers and clients, what are the most crucial things, three most crucial things? So the three most crucial things are the scope responsibilities and payment terms mm. Mm. yeah too many contracts i've seen are very woolly loosely worded it isn't really clear what party is going to be doing what and by when and how they're going to get paid so long as you've got those three things outlined you've pretty much got the the nuts and bolts of your contract agreed yeah so okay. there are specific um, outcomes 
that a service provider has to provide and on that basis of having delivered it, they get paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think especially in this market, uh, the scope and milestone payments and payment terms need to be really ironed out because payment terms seems to be the biggest issue that startups generally face. You know? Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. And, and the other thing I'd also advise uh, the startups is that don't necessarily feel obliged to offer credit to every single customer whom you yeah. encounter. It's, yeah. it's nice, it's a, it's a good world gesture to offer credit, but the headache that can come from collecting that money yeah. can yeah. really take away a startup's attention from actually running their business because they're always worried about when they're gonna recover that money. Yeah, yeah, and it can completely mess up your cash flow as well. Yeah, and your runway. Yeah, yeah. your runway, it could, yeah, it could mess up a lot of things in your company. Like I would stay away from credit as much as possible, at least in the starting phase of your company. Yeah, Indeed. definitely, yeah. definitely. Okay, great. Um, so something interesting that we saw on your LinkedIn profile um, for for AA consultants was that it's more Franklin and Bash and less Harvey Specter. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's <laughs> so, quite interesting. Well, thank you very much for picking up on that. So for anyone who's watched um, Suits, you'll know Harvey Specter. Mm-hmm. You'll know he's a... Uh, an eagle-nosed business person who wears very sharp suits and is very, very rigid about the way he does deals, uh, very aggressive in the way that he goes about chasing and closing deals, but that's what his reputation is based upon. Mm-hmm. If you contract that, contrast that with Franklin and Bash, mm-hmm. who are a duo of lawyers who were bought out by a much, much bigger firm in the series Franklin and Bash, mm-hmm. and you see just how personable they are, you see how much they enjoy their job, you see how much they may have fun with their clients, mm-hmm. and you've got to think about it as a business, who do you want to be representing you mm. in front of your potential investors, in front of your potential clients? Yeah. Who do you want to be sitting down? Do you want to have a very hard-nosed business person or do you want to have someone who's personable, who can perhaps loosen their tie a bit, sit down over dinner and have a good conversation about how to do business uh, with that party? It's all up to your brand. But I would strongly recommend thinking about Franklin and Bash as your model <laughs> simply because it's a lot easier to get on with people like that than I think probably Harvey Specter is. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, in the real world, especially if you're a startup, you need that a little bit more interpersonal touch. Because, you need that flexibility. Um, yeah, because uh, you you're so new. Like everything is new when you're a startup, yeah. right? Like you're uh, like build everything from scratch. So sometimes you need a bit more of a friendly. Um, you know, or yeah, a person. Yeah, you want someone touch. who's part of your camp, you know, uh, yeah. and on your Indeed. side. So, so that's what AA Consultants is uh, all about. I, we we pride ourselves on approaching clients with a smile. Mm-hmm. Okay. We want to make sure that our clients feel relaxed and uh, at ease about talking to us about their problems because some of those problems and talking about them can reveal some really deep insecurities about their business and you mm-hmm. need to make sure they feel comfortable talking to a lawyer yeah. to make sure that they feel comfortable sharing details so you can be a better lawyer for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay, uh, one more thing I want to check with you about is copyright and trademark. Mm. Now, um, a lot of companies don't go through that process and uh, how important do you think that is and at what point or what stage of the company should you start looking into those kind of things? That's a very good question. So two things I would advise your clients uh, and what your, your listeners to do. Mm. Firstly, check and see if your brand has been trademarked anywhere in the world. 
before. Mm. And you can go to the World Intellectual Property website. You can search their database for free. You can look for um, particularly keywords or brand elements of your, your, your brand. And you can run that through their database for free and just check to see whether anyone might, may, may have done something similar. Okay. Um, oh, so I long as they that. haven't, then you're free to trademark that. And you've got to then think about where you trademark. Some trademark um, mm. registries, if you trademark in one country, it'll be reciprocated around other countries around the world. So, for example, if you're trademarking in the European Union, you've got reciprocal rights of trademark everywhere else in the European Union where your brand is protected. Okay. Whereas if you trademark here in uh, the UAE, it might only be recognized in the GCC only. Okay, um, interesting. So, where would you advise people to trademark their company? Anywhere. That's when they operate, right? Wherever you operate and wherever your brand is likely to be generating a lot of cash. Yeah, okay. yeah. And wh at what stage should people do it? Uh, it it feels like it may be a little bit futile to do it very early on in your startup. So, at what stage should people consider? Actually, this? I think it's actually at that stage, if you don't mind me saying. I think it actually okay. from the very, very yeah, first stages of your business, check to see whether the trademark that you want to use or the brand that you want to use is trademarked anywhere else or whether there's a similar brand that okay. may be operating with a similar design right or a similar color scheme okay. or name. Because you might find that as that business grows and they want to expand into the territory you're in, yeah. they're going to want that, want that trademark. And because okay. they've been operating uh, elsewhere in the world, they're more likely to be able to register their trademark than you are. Oh, yeah. okay, fine. Okay. Well, uh, anyway, to just do a search, it doesn't cost anything. So at least finding out whether or not that space is available yeah. um, is a good start. Absolutely. Already. Yeah, like, what do you think of, like, blocking a domain, though? Is that, like, pretty much like a trademark, or no? I, th I think blocking a domain is one of the most fun things about operating a business, and I strongly <laughs> recommend businesses do it. Is it fun, it. though? It's if you're looking for a .com domain name, it it's is next to a impossible. pain. Yeah. Because pain. so many people are out there having fun trying to think about where the best keywords are going to come up and yeah, how they're going to be integrated yeah. into websites. I I personally love registering domains. I think okay. it, yeah, it, it's... Yeah, I, I have a problem too. <laughs> it's like anytime we come up with an idea, I'm like, let's register yeah, the domain. I think I'm a, we must have 20 domains now. Yes, yes. I, yeah. think it, I, think it's actually, I think it's absolutely essential because don't forget what's going to happen is you go out onto social media and you start using certain keywords and certain phrases which are associated with your business. And if yeah. someone sees an idea there which they can use to trademark that name or to register a domain, they're going to go ahead and do it. Yeah, yeah. And it will cost them $12 and it will cost you a huge amount of pain to get that domain name released yeah, back to you. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So, so if you don't own the trademark but you own the domain... Is, is there a legal way they can force you to give you the, them it's, the domain? It's very, very subjective. It's very subjective. And I wouldn't okay. like to necessarily lead your listeners down to thinking that they have to register that specific domain in order to own that trademark or vice versa. Okay. Um, but I think what they should do first is do that search. Do the search yeah. online to see who might be using a similar brand and okay. thinking about where you want to trademark your brand as well at the same time. Okay. All right. Um, another question I get asked from founders is about the NDA question. Right, so uh, when they want to share their idea, um, they usually uh, are worried that people might, you know, steal the idea or something like that. Yeah. I usually advise them against that because I don't think uh, an idea is worth anything without execution. But uh, w what do you think about NDAs and what? How would you advise people to go about it? I share your view, and I 
I really, really strongly recommend your listeners don't get too hung up on NDAs. It, mm. It's not worth the effort because mm. the only way to enforce an NDA is by going to a court and asking them to order another party not to do something or not to release some information. Mm. But in today's age of social media and online publications, how easy is that going to be? It's really, yeah. really difficult. And by the time you try to go to a court and ask them to ask a party not to release some information, it might it's already be in a public domain already. It's yeah. really difficult. It's yeah. and, and so therefore, I advise people to put a one-page NDA forward to their counterparty just to say, look, we are exchanging some kind of commercial information mm -hmm. or some confidential information and just, just to recall the fact it's being exchanged, but don't get too hung up on the nitty-gritties of it because it, it, you're going to find it's a waste of time as a, as a new business. Yeah, okay. I know of a VC firm and a startup that were negotiating on an NDA for <laughs> three months and it was like, uh, okay, it's it just seems like yeah. a waste of time. It's, it is a waste of time. I think just a one-pager is enough. Mm -hmm. um, um, and I think that the if your listeners are based in this part of the world, uh, the Middle East, where they will find that there are very, very strong laws protecting the release of trade secrets. Mm. Okay. Um, and it's seen to be almost like a criminal offence if trade secrets are released. Uh, I could refer you, for example, in the UAE to Article 379 of the Penal Code, mm -hmm. which criminalises the release of trade secrets. And you have that protection in place. Okay, okay. So, so an NDA is just a formality. Indeed. Yeah, okay. Indeed. Okay, Okay. Um, so we always ask uh, our uh, host this question. So what advice would you uh, give to founders and startups? Okay, so I want to refer to a specific uh, example okay. where uh, a friend of mine had operated a business and he'd instructed a supplier mm -hmm. to build uh, the website for his business. Mm -hmm. The suppliers were very slow and they delayed their work they didn't necessarily keep up with the milestones or the deliverables. Uh, and as a result, the project was delayed for nearly six to eight months um, wow. and constantly slipping behind. My uh, friend who operated that business was very accommodating. He wouldn't necessarily hold them to those timescales and he'd always give them extensions. But it got to a stage where they'd slipped so far behind they were never going to deliver and he had to go to a court to ask the court to order them to release the money that he'd paid as a deposit back to him. The okay. court actually refused to give the money back to him. The, because the he didn't challenge the he, correct. milestones? Correct. He didn't challenge those milestones. He didn't hold the supplier to account for the fact they slipped on their deadlines. And so the mm -hmm. first piece of advice I give to your listeners is when you are relying on suppliers, key suppliers to do work for you, make sure you get them to stick to their milestones and don't be afraid of pulling the plug if they're not delivering on those milestones. Because what you're going to find is if you give them waivers of those milestones, it's going to count against them. They're going to count against, against you. Against you, yeah. Indeed, yeah. Okay, so... Um, if I send an email uh, about a milestone, does that count as a legal notice or do I have to legally, like have some kind of legal paperwork to be sent to them saying that my milestone wasn't completed? Well, the answer to that question is look at the notice clause in your contract. Okay. Mm. Typically, notices should be delivered in writing mm -hmm. um, or they should be delivered in, as an email but with a letter-headed letter and stamped PDF document attached to it. So a lot okay. of it depends on whether you allow both parties to exchange emails as if they are contractual notices. Okay. So check the notice clause and, and look for that information. It should, it should be there for you. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, I think that uh, this conversation has been very insightful and, and from what I gather is that uh, founders need to take legal terms and contracts really seriously, not really, uh, you know, operate on the basis of verbal agreements and handshakes and have uh, all the bases covered in their contracts early on because it turns out to be really, really expensive and really, really painful if it's after the fact. 
Indeed, yeah. 100%. Okay. If that was the key takeaway from today's podcast, I'd be advising all your listeners to make sure they have written contracts from the first day they start operating. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay. All right, thank you, Khalid, uh, so much for being on the podcast and sharing your legal advice. Uh, I totally agree with you. It's super important to get uh, your legal paperwork all in place, especially as your startup grows and when you become, uh, you know, when you become investable, then it's even more important. We're going to leave links to AA consultants in the description so you can go check out more of what they do. If you're a startup looking for legal advice, definitely check them out. And it's not just legal advice. They also uh, provide HR advice as well. Yes, that's correct. We have an amazing HR consultant working with us. Yes, we know uh, her. She is pretty awesome. Indeed. So I want to make a plug for her. Her name is Hannah Fernandez. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's one of the best HR managers out there. And she's ready to work with clients who are looking to um, uh, really make their HR functions uh, and bring them up to, to bring them up to speed. Okay, amazing, great. Um, so, if you have any questions specifically uh, for Khalid, you can also leave us a voice note um, on Anchor, and uh, we'll play it back in a future episode, and we can maybe have him and Hannah here uh, and have them answer the questions. Um, so, we know a lot of founders have many questions regarding legal terms. So. Khalid's the best person for that. So you can also watch this episode on YouTube. Um, please, if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, do subscribe, leave us a review and a rating. It really helps us out and it helps other founders discover our podcast as well. And I think that's it. I so think that's thanks it. a lot for being on the show and keep on hustling. <laughs>